October 31st, 2017. It's a holiday 500 years in the making. As we prepare for the celebration of the 500th anniversary of the beginning of the Protestant Reformation, a time when the church rediscovers the amazing message that we are saved by God's grace apart from any works on our own, that God's love is manifest in Jesus. But that is not a teaching or a belief that comes easily. 500 years ago, a young man by the name of Dr. Martin Luther took upon himself to challenge some of the abuses in the church and unwittingly released forces that have had ramifications on our society ever since. This is Into the Wardrobe. Hey, we're back. This is Stephanie with episode eight, and Joe and I are going to dive deeper into taking a closer look at um, the Reformation character Martin Luther. It's kind of a big deal this year because it's celebrating the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, which has affected the entire Protestant church um, and a lot of things outside of the church, too, which we're going to dive into kind of at the later half of the episode. Joe and I are pretty big fans of Martin Luther, partially because we both all work in a Lutheran school system. But when I teach it to my students, I like to describe Martin Luther kind of as my history crush. He's not a very good-looking guy. If you were to Google search Martin Luther, not. But I'm kind of, you know, very much in love with a lot of his philosophies. And his brain is how I describe it to my students. And they always kind of roll their eyes at me. But this summer, Joe and I separately, we didn't know this until we started talking, um, made a pilgrimage to Germany to visit many of the different historical sites throughout Martin Luther's life, traveling from his birthplace to the famous Wittenberg and then the Castle Wartburg and just kind of trying to get a better feel for the things that he went through in the 1500s to reform the Protestant church and the society that we know it is today. So I'll have to admit, and, and Stephanie hit it, uh, the nail right on the head, if you'll pardon the pun, and that is that Luther really is a, a huge historical hero of mine. And so I've been really excited for a long time that the 500th anniversary of the beginning of the Reformation is coming up. Now, as I mentioned at the beginning, uh, keep in mind that Reformation Day is targeted, it's October 31st. And of course, as soon as you say that, kids start getting nervous. For example, this year I canceled our annual sit out around the fire and hand out candy party so that I can go to a Reformation service that evening. And kids are a little bit suspicious about that because they do like their candy. But what happens is in the year 1517, lots of political elements are going on both within the church and without the church in Europe. But among those is the selling of indulgences in part to raise money for the building of St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. As this is unfolding, Martin Luther, who is at the time a monk, a young pastor, he's professor at an up-and-coming university in uh, Wittenberg, Germany, which is uh, on the east side of Germany, probably about a half-hour train ride from Berlin. And he's concerned about the fact that people are being taught they can really, in a sense, buy their way out of punishment in the afterlife through the purchase of something called indulgences. And so he prepares a set of theses. They are famously called the 95 Theses. 
And according to the tradition, and of course, there's always a little debate about how much of this is just mythologized, but he nails the 95 Theses to the door of the castle church in Wittenberg. There is a very geeky picture of me wearing my 500th Reformation celebration t-shirt standing right in front of that door um, for my pilgrimage this summer. Now, having said that, Luther wasn't so much trying to start a religious revolt, so to speak, as he was simply trying to engage in some sort of academic debate about the usefulness of the indulgences. He doesn't realize that he has really stepped, so to speak, into a viper's nest in that when he writes his... Uh, 95 Theses and promotes them, he really is stepping on the toes of some of the important people in Rome, particularly the Pope, all the while he thinks he's actually honoring what he believes the Pope would be teaching. Due to the newly invented printing press, his 95 Theses get disseminated rather quickly, and all of a sudden, controversy arises. So Joe kind of explained Martin Luther and the impact of him in a nutshell. Um, When I teach this, um, I tend to kind of start a couple weeks before October 31st, and we read a Martin Luther story, we maybe, you know, read a comic book or two, we watch a short video, and then we try to put on a play. And the typical place when you teach Martin Luther, you don't start in 1483 at his birth, you usually start right around the 1500s, because this is the big momentous thing that causes a continuous of events of Luther's life. So in 1501, Luther goes to Erfurt to study to be a lawyer, and his father's been pushing him his entire educational career to go out and make something of his life because you're measured on status of what your job is, and a lawyer is probably as good as it's going to get. There's a famous scene where um, Luther is traveling home, and on July 2nd, 1505, he is caught in this horrible thunderstorm. He is scared for his life. We probably have all seen those moments where you're having an out-of-body experience, and you're just you're having a panic attack because you think your life is being threatened. Luther is so scared that he chooses to turn to prayer, but he doesn't pray to God or to Christ like we would think of when you're scared. He chooses to pray to St. Anne, and he prays to St. Anne and tells her, if you spare my life in this horrible thunderstorm, I will turn to dedicating my life to Christ, and I will become a monk. Well, in turn, Luther does not die, and he chooses to dedicate himself to becoming a monk. Well, monastic life back then is very um, strict and regimented. So a typical day for a monk, remember, is meant to be dedicated to focusing and growing their faith the entire time. So it might look something like this. At 2.30 a.m., they're waking up, and they do early prayers from 3 to 5. At 5 o'clock in the morning, they are studying religious text. And then at 6, they have a dawn prayer. At 7.30, they study religious text, so that's Bible and other theological writings of the time. At 8 a.m., they have morning prayer, a church service, and meeting. At 9.45, they work in the fields or copy books depending on what task they are given that day. At 12 p.m., they are doing noon prayers in Mass, so partaking in the Lord's Supper. And then 2 p.m., they eat their daily meal. 2.45, they work in the fields and copy texts again. At 4.15, they have afternoon prayers. 6.15, evening prayers. And 6.30, they go to bed, getting ready to get up at 2.30 in the morning. So not a very exciting life, but this is something that they are doing to grow closer to God. And in this time, they believe they are earning 
penance or good works to get out of purgatory and earn their way to heaven. Essentially, what's happening here is that a doctrine has emerged in which God's grace is understood to be something that opens up the doorway, but that a person has to really continue to work to earn that grace, whereby one will eventually achieve a place in heaven. Luther is a very, very deep thinker, and he's one who internalizes this teaching to such a degree that he is immensely aware of the depth of his sin and his inability to stand before the presence of a holy and perfect God. On one level, this recognition drives him to quite a bit of despair. It also leads him to explore how it is he can unlock the treasures of God's grace. And so there are various stories, uh, essentially um, probably the one that will best encapsulate Luther is as he's operating within the monastery mode, and, and of course private confession and absolution or forgiveness is considered to be a means by which one can grow closer to God, it is said that Luther, people would see him coming to the confessional and they would try to sneak out the other way so they didn't get stuck with him because he would be confessing his sins literally for hours on end and he would be wrapping up and then something else would occur to him. And it's not like he was this horrible sin-mongering person. Eventually, as he's wrestling with his desire to find a graceful God, his father confessor, man by uh, Johann Staupitz, finally arranges for Luther to go to Wittenberg. And in 1508, Luther travels there to study theology and become a teacher, if you will. And so by 1512, Luther becomes the Dr. Martin Luther. And it is during this time in Wittenberg that he starts studying the scriptures in depth, something that's uh, rather a new practice coming out of the Renaissance as a whole, which is emerging at this time, and the concept uh, that we refer to as ad fontes, out of the fount, and this desire to get back to the original languages. And so Luther is digging into the original Greek and Hebrew texts, and he comes to discover that what scripture teaches is that grace is a gift from God, which we are incapable of earning. And this really unlocks in many ways, but not completely, the despair he feels as he comes to find that God's love is one that comes to him apart from anything he could possibly offer God. And through this, a lot of the medieval doctrine that he had been taught and that had grown up around the church for the previous 1500 years starts to fall away as he's rediscovering the biblical truths of Christianity. So while Luther is teaching in Wittenberg, a lot of things are happening throughout the Roman Catholic Church. One thing that's happening is um, Pope Leo X is trying to build the St. Peter's Basilica, and he doesn't have the money. So they try to come up with a interesting way to acquire it. You mean purgatory. This is a place where you are purged of your sin before you are allowed to enter heaven. Kind of like the doctor's office, you really never know how long you will wait there. A couple hours, a couple thousand years, you really don't know how long it takes for your sins to be purged. So to help people maybe not go to purgatory and to build the wonderful St. Peter's Basilica in Rome, 
the Pope comes up with this fantastic idea to sell coupons into heaven, like a get-out-of-jail-free from Monopoly. The most famous person to sell these things was Johannes Tetzel, and he's selling them in Wittenberg. And the kind of the interesting thing is with, with these indulgences, you can purchase time out of purgatory. But the great thing is it's, it's even more magical. You can purchase purgatory for dead relatives. So as I explained to my students, if Aunt Marge had maybe a wicked tongue, you could, and you're scared of her eternal soul, you can buy this thing for even though she's already passed and slowly enter her into heaven. What Luther begins to see is distressing him because as he's studying the Bible more and more, he realizes this is, this is totally inappropriate. He's seeing families that are impoverished and they don't have enough money to provide food for their children. But just like any good parent, you would choose to save your child's eternal soul. And Johannes Tetzel, the seller of these indulgences, kind of just puts the icing on the cake. Just like we have jingles today to help us remember certain companies. He had a little saying that just drove the point home that you need these indulgences so badly. His saying went, as soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. It makes for a really interesting showdown between this villainous Johann Tetzel and the quiet scholar Luther. Uh, but really what you have is in Martin Luther, a man who has a pastor's heart and he sees the souls of his parishioners being burdened. He doesn't understand that the Pope was even involved in the indulgence selling. He really thinks that John Tetzel is operating outside of the authority of Rome and wants to call attention to what he sees to be as abuses. So, We've already talked about him in the famous episode of nailing the 95 theses to the church door. But after he does so, as I mentioned previously, the theses start getting spread around. They actually make their way to Rome. And very quickly, a bit of a theological firestorm starts to emerge. And he finds himself real quickly embroiled in a place where he has to choose to either stand behind the theological concerns he has or to completely back down, knowing that if he does, what he's really doing is selling out the souls of his own parishioners by not standing for what he believes to be the truth. By 1518, Luther is summoned to Augsburg, where he is going to stand court, so to speak, be interrogated by a Cardinal Cayetan. And really, when Luther shows up, it's just expected that he is going to repent of his position, and all will be forgiven. He was just kind of a backwater monk from that little backwater town, Wittenberg. But once, as much as Luther desires to make right with the Roman Catholic Church, he finds that Cayetan can't answer the deep questions he's asking, such as dealing with the contradictions of the councils that have come before who have made different decrees that contradict one another. And so eventually what happens is Staupitz was there in an effort to save Luther's life. He basically retracts or releases Luther from his vows and Luther kind of disappears into the night. Well, as things continue, Luther goes back to Wittenberg, where he is teaching some more. His ideas continue to spread. And finally, this really grows into not only a religious but a political issue when he is called to testify at a trial that is referred to as a diet. Specifically, this is in the city of Worms. 
1521, Luther goes to the Diet of Worms, where he is called to recant from his writing and to back down once and for all. As tension begins to grow, Luther is called to the Diet of Worms, where he is supposed to testify against his writings. Everyone is there to witness this magnificent event, to see if Luther does choose to take back the things that he's been preaching for the last three years. Emperor Charles V is there, and on April 17th, 1521, Luther is told to recant. And Luther takes a very interesting stance. He says, if you can prove parts in the Bible where I am incorrect, not what man says, but what God says, I will be more than happy to take back everything I said, he says. Um, Unfortunately, they can't prove anywhere in the scripture. They just tell him to recant over and over again. And Luther is very famous for saying, no, I cannot. Here I stand. God help me. When we were actually in um, Germany, they had socks and shoes of that state statement. And I was really tempted to buy them, but I already had spent all my money on Luther paraphernalia and everything else. So as a result of this, Luther is um, excommunicated out of the church and told that he is an outlaw, which is very um, different than we would think today as like the cowboy being the outlaw and not being welcomed into the community. But when you are an outlaw, you are um, an enemy of the state because the church and state were not separated, which means if someone were to see Luther, they were um, allowed to kill him. So Luther leaves the town hoping for safety. And on his travels, his group is stopped in the middle of the night. And Luther is demanded by this group of thugs to be handed over. The people in the crowd are very, very nervous. So they, you know, scared for their lives. They choose to give Luther over to these criminals demanding him. But all is not lost because, unbeknownst to Luther, these thugs who have demanded that he is handed over were really sent by his protector, Prince Frederick who establishes Luther a fair distance away from Wittenberg at the Wartburg Castle. Now, I had the opportunity to visit the castle. I know Stephanie did too. I didn't get a chance to go inside, even though she did. And I'm seeing her gloating a little bit right now about that. I spent easily an hour, an hour and a half, just walking around the parapets, the outside of the castle. This is an amazing structure. It's the top of this amazing hill where it has a vantage point over the valley for miles and miles. And you can only imagine that that perhaps this is what Luther was thinking when he wrote his famous hymn, A Mighty Fortress. Because let me tell you, the Wartburg Castle is not one that is going to be easily taken by enemy forces. While there, um, Luther being holed up begins to translate the Bible into the German vernacular. This is something that is really going to ultimately divorce the people following Luther from the Roman Catholic Church. It's not just enough that he's now been excommunicated and declared an outlaw, but the concept that the common people could read God's word is really one that will divide the church. While there, Luther has uh, this famous event as, at times, he was a man who struggled with what I believe we would call today depression. And uh, describes a time when, when Satan appears tempting and Luther famously throws his inkwell at Satan. Uh, demonstrating that Luther was, was very much aware that there was a spiritual warfare going on as well as the political and ecclesiastical battles in which he was embroiled. 
Finally, he is able to go out and explore the world a little bit, but they're concerned that Luther's life may still be on the line. So instead of Martin Luther, he goes incognito as uh, Sir George. Now, the reason Luther needs to go out incognito is that while he's been away, other forces have been filling the vacuum that was left behind when Luther disappeared. Um, specifically, there was what's called the Peasants' Revolt that began to brew. There are some radical reformers, uh, among them probably Luther's greatest foe is a man by the name of Thomas Munzer. And they are going about the countryside. They are attacking priests. They're destroying icons of any sort that are being found in churches. And really, the peasants are citing Luther as an excuse for the rebellion. And they're demanding that because Luther teaches that all men are equal, that they really ought not to have to bow knee to the princes. And the Peasants' Revolt really becomes one that is very dangerous and very deadly. Some of these um, groups that emerge out of this are, are really what we would refer to today as terrorists in many ways. And this kind of turns to a dark side of Luther and some of the accusations that are thrown at him in that he finally encourages the princes that it is their job, according to Romans, to put down rebellion. In fact, he has some incredibly harsh words for rebellious people that eventually winds up in an all-out slaughter of the peasants. And this is something that Luther is haunted by for the rest of his life. It's not so much that he was calling upon the peasants being slaughtered, which I think sometimes is how he's being described by modern-day historians, but he's encouraging the princes to use the earthly power they've been given to stop evil and rebellion from spreading. And unfortunately, the princes go overboard, and so he has to deal with this in his conscience. So as the Peasants' War begins to settle down from Luther, you know, calling them to not break the icons and the pictures and all the sacred things in the churches, the community begins to be restored to a sense of normal. While Luther's looking at this, he understands the importance of community, and he begins to preach that as Christians we all have callings by God, or we would call it vocation. And since we are equal in God's eyes, we all play an important part in success of the community. So this is where Luther and his really good friend and companion, Philip Melanchthon, come in and talk about how educating our children and the ability to read and speak fluently is going to grow the community together as they get older and older. So Luther and Melanchthon talk about Boys and girls should be given the ability to read, which is a very revolutionary thought to think we are going to be educating girls and boys regardless of what class they are in because he sees them as equal. And with this education, um, it begins at home, obviously, where Luther is very famous for writing Luther's small catechism, where parents are able to teach their kids in the basics of theology. But also with the ability to be able to read, they are able to read the Bible at their own will and be able to dissect theological questions at their own and not be based on authority like before, where the Catholic Church might be preaching something that is heresy and they just have to take it at face value. So while traveling to Germany this year, we were there to focus on Luther, the religious reformer, and reminding us of we are saved by grace through faith. 
But the European people see Luther more as an icon because of his his education reform. He is the first person to mention, as I said, um, free education public education paid by the government for men and women. And so this is the big thing that he has known through mostly in Europe as being the educational reformer and the modern day education system that we have today. Now, Stephanie, uh, you mentioned Philip Melanchthon earlier. And one of the things that I really took away from my trip to Germany is that Luther alone is not uh, considered the educational reformer. But in many circles, this man who is oftentimes the forgotten hero of the Reformation, Philip Melanchthon, is actually viewed in Germany as the modern educational guy, maybe even over and above what Luther is considered, which is really interesting. In fact, I had been taught that that Philip Melanchthon was kind of this hanger-on of Luther, and he was a good friend, and so Luther excused some of the uh, sometimes poor doctrine that would seep in. And one of my takeaways from the trip to Wittenberg is that that's not really the case at all, but Philip Melanchthon was this intellectual giant, even compared to Luther, whom we consider to be an intellectual giant, that the two of them found themselves working together in the same place at the same time in history, almost alone is evidence of the providence of God. Melanchthon is this huge, huge language scholar and linguist to whom Luther often defers and and really lifts up Melanchthon, who's about 15 years his younger or so. Now, as well as their friendship that grows through this time, of course, we've got to talk about some of the other personalities that come in. And most importantly, of course, is that this former monk finally um, finds himself in a position where having advocated that pastors can get married, he himself becomes engaged and on June 13th of 1525 uh, marries Katerina Vambora, who had escaped from a nunnery herself. Uh, Again, the famous story is that she and a group of nuns escaped to Wittenberg in pickled herring barrels. And Luther had attempted to match all of these nuns up and and marry them off. And Katerina was at a place where she had made it quite clear that Luther was one of only two men she'd be interested in marrying. And lo and behold, they wind up getting married. They have children. Uh, She seems to be an incredible match for him. She historically speaking, seems to be a very strong woman. She runs a major household. In fact, one of the things that happens is uh, the monastery in which Luther had lived when he first moved to Wittenberg is shut down and eventually it's given to him as his house. And this is, this is a huge, huge place. And she runs this household along with students at the university, sometimes feeding as many as 40 people at a meal. She's the household financier. She is the one who's really managing everything, brewing the beer, and really keeping things together. And I think in many ways gives Luther the support that he needs as he continues with his writing, both theological treatises and tracts and hymns as he is involved uh, in many of the controversies that are still going on. Now, it was during this time that he and his beloved Katie, as he would call his wife, again, are settling down to married life and 
Luther is doing a lot of entertaining. Oftentimes it's his students who are there at the dinner table with him. In fact, there are literally volumes of books that are written where people have documented some of the many things that Luther would say while sitting at the meal. They're referred to just quite simply as table talks. And we do have to acknowledge that while Luther is this incredible theological genius, he's also the son of a coal miner. He is a bit of a ruffian when it comes to his language. He is highly polemical. He is not afraid to drop German equivalents of four-letter words, um, particularly when he's referring to those with whom he disagrees theologically. And there are times when some of the things that uh, are reported from his students really are kind of embarrassing. And so we get kind of both sides of Luther as this man who has this great insight into scripture and yet a very earthy kind of fellow, the kind of person who's willing to sit around, drink beer, and tell farting jokes. Oftentimes, he gets attacked for some of this stuff. In fact, as we're getting ready for the 500th celebration that I had mentioned previously, I was at the library and a book caught my attention called Martin Luther, Renegade, and Prophet. I thought, oh, that sounds kind of interesting. It's the 500th anniversary. I've been looking for a new biography. And as I read the jacket, a couple of things occurred to me that I would like to address. So, Stephanie, uh, what this author, her name is Lyndall Roper, writes uh, in the jacket, speaking of, of Luther, uh, he urged the... Uh, Speaking of Luther, when German peasants rose up against the nobility, Luther urged the aristocracy to slaughter them. And we talked about that and, and how maybe that's an overstatement. Uh, but she continues, he was a ferocious anti-Semite and a virulent misogynist, even as he argued for liberated human sexuality within marriage. And I thought, ooh, what exactly is this about Luther? And so I went ahead and gave the book a read. And actually, I think... It's a pretty decent book. It's a psychological biography of trying to reconstruct Luther's psychology by looking at the various things he's written, including personal letters. And while I think maybe the case of misogynism is a bit overdone because he was a product of his times, and so one of the examples in the book is given that, that the wives of the time would be expected to refer to their husbands by their titles. So Katie would call him Dr. Luther. But the truth is he does have some pretty uh, impossible to defend, indefensible statements, particularly about the Jews, which does put some blemishes on this amazing life. When teaching Martin Luther in school, I usually um, give them like a week or two where we just kind of dive into his entire lifestyle. And at the end, we, we top it off with watching um, the Martin Luther movie that came out in the early 2000s. And my students are always very thrown off because they imagine this historical, you know, very deep, thoughtful man. And then they watch Martin Luther and they see his crude language and his jokes and they're a little thrown off because it's not what they expected. They, because this, this, this saint who is preaching the word of God. Um, when I was on in Germany, one of the fantastic things they told us that kind of just brought Martin Luther a little more to life was when he ate, he was very, um, loud about encouraging burping and farting because it tells the cook how great things are. Another thing that was very interesting is while we're touring, they had 95 artifacts that just summed up Luther, and one of them was a toilet seat from 1500s. And I sat there, and I, 
you couldn't help but ask why in the world do you have a toilet seat to remember Martin Luther? And the interesting story was, is Luther believed, like you mentioned in the Wartburg Castle, that Satan was always creeping around and ready to get him and just lure him into sin. And Luther believed that three things drove Satan away. One was reading the gospel. One was music, which is why he's known for writing so many hymns. And he believed his best thoughts um, came from the crapper. And so he would sit in the bathroom because he was convinced that Satan didn't like the smell. And that's why, to this day, people argue that your best thoughts come when you're in the bathroom. But to kind of go back to your your discussion on um, Luther's writings on the Jews, it was very... Um, Something that I was familiar with, but not until I went to Germany and went through the museums. They always were done in a chronological order. So you see Luther's birth, and then the 95 Theses, and then his his reformation with um, the education system. And then it always ended with the most recent thing. And it was this. It was, there was always a room dedicated to his writings on the Jews. He talks in his writings as an older man about burning down synagogues and destroying Jewish homes and taking their prayer books away from them and forbidding rabbis from talking and just goes on and on and on and it's absolutely horrible and these museums brought light to this and you're reading these quotes and you're blushing because it's just absolutely embarrassing that the creator of a or a founder of a uh, a denomination wrote these things and what was even worse is in germany the nazi party took on or grabbed on to these writings and used it to justify the holocaust and the killing of jews and it's just very it's a very crazy thing to kind of comprehend. Stephanie, I agree. It was really hard to observe some of the displays in the museums that I was exploring. Uh, number one, because of what Luther wrote, particularly in that document on the Jews and their lies that's written later on in his life. And then also to see how the National Socialist Party takes that very small and maybe even near the end of the life a little bit mentally disturbed writings of Luther and uses it at least in part as vindication for the way they treat the Jewish people in the 1940s. Now, what's really disturbing is out of that comes what I believe to be is um, a cliche type of thinking that Martin Luther actually paved the way for Adolf Hitler. And now I'm going to kind of dive into some of the research I was doing. And so I need to give credit to Dr. Uwe Simonetto, uh, who writes The Fabricated Luther, where he takes on and he writes specifically about this cliche that Luther is the one who opens the door for uh, the discrimination against the Jews by Adolf Hitler and the Nazis. But really what happens is there are a number of people who use Luther as kind of an excuse. One of them is the famous author Thomas Mann, but the one whom Dr. Simonetto probably cites as being the biggest perpetuator of this teaching is William Schreier from uh, his huge volume, The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich. And Schreier seems to make the case that these teachings of Luther, as I said, paved the way and made it okay so that the German Christian groups were accepting of what the National Socialists bring in. Simonetto refutes that and makes some interesting points. Number one, the fact, as we talked about in a previous episode with Dietrich Bonhoeffer, are, is that 
the confessional church rises up in opposition to what the Nazis are doing and actually stands against the treatment of the Jews. Uh, Furthermore, recognizing that the German Christian church had really descended into a a form of liberalism that was very much divorced from the kind of Christianity promoted by Martin Luther, it's really some of the other countries like Denmark that are much more predominantly Lutheran who, again, don't buy into, but rather as much as they're capable, stand against what Adolf Hitler is doing. And so it's important to recognize that while we do have this embarrassment from some of the the writings of Luther, we can't ignore that they exist. There's no way we can defend them. They're horrendous. But we also have to recognize that there was much more to Luther's life and the Reformation. And of course, Martin Luther's only one figure in this in this Protestant Reformation. And I think it would be very dangerous to jettison all that Luther stood for because of these embarrassing remarks. Likewise, we can't merely sweep them under the rug and say, oh, he was a product of his time. True as that may be, these things are just out of keeping with the Christian charity to which we're called by our Lord Jesus, who himself is a Jew. So when we look at Luther's life now, 500 years later, we do see these little blips that we've mentioned about writings in his later life, but we also see the wonderful reformation that he had for the church, the Protestant church, where we see that we are saved by grace through faith and not by our own doing so that no one can boast. We see also the counter-reformation with the Catholic Church of you know, going in and changing their indulgence. But we, as a community of Christians, we realize that we have all been given a purpose in this world. I always tell my students, you don't have to search for the meaning of life now. Luther already told us it's to serve Christ in whatever capacity we have been called to do. Um, This is the eucatastrophe in this episode is through all the nitty gritty of people being told they must earn their way to heaven or earn God's love. This one guy went back to the scripture and he realized that's not what it is. We are given the eucatastrophe. This is what J.R.R. Tolkien says. The resurrection is the eucatastrophe, the story of incarnation. This story is the beginning and ending in joy. What a great place to end our episode today where we are reminded that no matter what happens in this world, all we need is Christ. And what a great example. We see Martin Luther with all of his flaws and little issues with the end of his life that we know that all he really needed to focus on was Christ and his true calling. Please check us out. We have a Facebook page, Into the Wardrobe Podcast. We would love to hear from you, get some reviews. Also, we have our Instagram page, Into the Wardrobe Podcast also. But the biggest thing we would love to have you guys do is take a moment and go on iTunes or tune in or wherever you subscribe to and leave us a review. We want those because the more reviews we get, we can share our message with the rest of the world. Make sure to join us next time, Episode 9. Join us on this quest to discover the eucatastrophe hidden in the worlds around us as we explore life, imagination, and everything. Narnia is just one of the many worlds visited by Lewis's literary children. Who knows where we'll end up when we jump into the wardrobe. <laughs>